Good morning. Uh, the text I would like to call your attention to is Acts chapter 8, verse 9 to 24. That will be our text for study this morning. Last week we learned that a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, causing it to scatter throughout parts of Israel. We saw how believers went about gossiping the gospel or evangelizing wherever they went and how Philip uh, proclaimed Jesus before crowds. We saw how Philip's preaching and miracle working sparked a citywide revival in Samaria. This morning we will discover that in the midst of all that good gospel work, in the midst of all the conversions and healings and joy, there was a man there who was present who professed new faith, uh, was baptized, and assimilated into the body of believers, and yet did not truly believe in his heart. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Simon, A Tear Amongst the Wheat. Take your Bibles and go ahead and turn over to Acts 8, 9-24. I will uh, read our main text, pray, and we will examine and apply it together. Go ahead and turn over to there now. Acts chapter 8. I'm turning there. And here we go. And we're going to be reading again from 9 to 24. It says, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver impair and may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Our last verse. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Gracious Heavenly Father, Father, <laughs> Father, Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in this moment uh, of great need, Lord. This is a moment of great need uh, for all of us. Lord, we are about to study a passage that shows a man who uh, professed faith in you and who was baptized and who hung out with the fellowship and followed Philip around and these other leaders, I suppose, and, and yet he did not believe, Lord. And uh, my great fear is that there are people in this congregation and in all congregations that are just simply going through the motions and have not given their hearts to you. They have not repented of their sin and trusted in you, Jesus Christ. They are maybe more captivated by what they see happening in the church rather than 
transformed by the message of the gospel. And so, Lord, help us in this time, Lord, to hear from you, to be convicted, and to submit ourselves to you, to believe in the finished work and person of Jesus Christ. God, be with us now as we study your word, and we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's begin to look at the passage line by line, or we'll look at it a couple of lines at a time. Uh, We're going to begin with 9 through 11. We're going to be going through larger sections today. Usually I do one verse or two verses here and there. We're going to do larger blocks because they have to be taught that way. You can't divide it into one verse here, one verse there, so bear with me. But anyways, let's read 9 to 11 again. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And then it says in 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Luke just sort of kind of repeats the same thing over and over and over. Um, Take notice of the point of contrast in the text, first of all. It says, but, the text, the section, verse 9, it begins with the word, but. Um, In verses 4 to 8, we studied those last week, Luke described all the wonderful things that were happening in Samaria. Uh, The scattered believers, along with Philip, were spreading the good news. They were gossiping the gospel. Philip was proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom of God, um, you know, the gospel. And and, and people were being saved through all of this evangelistic effort. People were being healed by the great mercy and power of God's healing hand. Uh, People were being freed of evil spirits. And that passage closes out with the amazing saying that, and much joy filled that place. And then we come to verse 9, where Luke wrote, but. This is a point of contrast. Luke wants us to know that something happened. Uh, We might call it an anomaly, if you will. It's like all these great things are happening, God is at work, and then, but, something happened, something took place. And immediately following the word but, we see that he introduces us to a man named Simon. According to the text, Simon was a magician. Now, magic was very common in Samaria, uh, and we're not talking about uh, what Luke is not uh, you know, implying here is this pull-the-rabbit-out-of-a-hat type of magic, you know, Harry Houdini David Blaine kind of magic, sleight of hand, you know, card trickery kind of magic. That is not the kind of magic that uh, is spoken about here. It's not that stuff. That stuff's illusionism. Um, it's entertaining. It uh, can be fun. I, I think it's lame, but people love it, And but that's not at all what he's talking about here. Magic in Simon's day was comprised of of several different things. It had a bit of science in it. Uh, There was a lot of superstition, uh, you know, inside of magic. There was math, astrology, uh, divination, uh, the occult, and even some aspects of agriculture. All of these things were kind of used in that day's type of magic, all of these things. Now, in our day, Simon probably would have been more like a psychic or a medium, or, or someone of that particular nature. Um, people in Simon's day, back in these ancient days, basically got into magic for the purposes of uh, self-fame, self-glorification for the purpose of exalting themselves, for the purpose of making a lot of money, uh, and really for the purpose of controlling others Um, Those are really the essential reasons and motives behind getting into magic. You could um, exalt yourself and become a superstar, a rock star. You could become, you know, the Harry Houdini uh, with a twist. You know, you could make a small fortune. You could control many people by your magical practices. You could manipulate them in in these things. And 
if you boil magic down, it was a very narcissistic uh, career path, uh, very inwardly focused, uh, look at me, look at me, narcissistic style of career. Magicians made small fortunes, uh, especially in locations where ignorance and gullibility were rampant. Um, communities that were exceedingly superstitious and syncretistic were prime places for magicians. Uh, Samaria was a prime place for magicians. You know, there was a lot of superstition and syncretism there. Uh, a lot of all roads lead to heaven sort of religious philosophy and things floating around in that in that culture. They were very, very confused. Uh, Samaria then would be much like the U.S. is today. In fact, the United States uh, is a prime locale for magicians. Uh, people here are very superstitious. Uh, people here are very syncretistic, multi-religion. You know, they've got religion. They've, you know, their own personal religion is, is a religion that's comprised of every religion. I've got a little Buddhism. I've got a little Christianity. I've got a little bit of an Islam twist here. I've got a little bit of Mormonism, whatever it is. They have these, you know, blends where none of the religions are solo, you know, that are on their own. It's just this Heinz 57 mixed all together sort of form of of religion. And that's what syncretism basically means. People here in the States are addicted to paranormal stuff, um, ghosts and, you know, grandma speaking through some medium. And I mean, how many paranormal movies are they producing these days? I mean, there's just tons and tons and tons of them. And, and so people in the States here are really addicted to this um, afterlife slash paranormal slash ghosts slash slasher movie kind of stuff. Um, TV psychics like John Edwards, and I, I'm not referring to the late great Jonathan Edwards, who was easily the greatest American theologian, probably greatest American preacher, but um, not him. There's a guy named John Edwards. And there's also a gal named Teresa Caputo, uh, both of these people are psychic mediums. Uh, they're both very successful. They're very popular here. And they have their own TV programs where they summons the dead and speak to grandma and find out where Rover is. And, you know, they do all these sorts of things and trickery. And people just buy into it. They're just, they're all over it, man. They're, they're into it big time. Now, the Bible warns pretty explicitly against engaging in magic for a number of reasons. Um, I'll give you one, and I think this might be the primary reason why, but magic is, and you might want to write this down, but magic is an unlawful and unnecessary spiritual medium that is used to discover information about the past, present, and future. So magic is sort of this unlawful, unnecessary way of finding out information about the past, present, and future. It's like an alternative form of revelation, an alternative form of gaining information. And, and yet, in the Bible, we can see how God has very graciously provided humanity with an account of history and creation. We can see that in the Bible. Um, God has, through the Bible, graciously provided humanity with prophetic glimpses into the future. Okay, God has said how the world comes to an end. God has said, uh, pointed out the events and things, the return of Christ and all of these things that will happen. He's given us some glimpses into the future. He's whet our appetites, so to speak. And God, through the Bible, has graciously provided humanity with what they need to know about the afterlife. And what happens to the souls of, of people. So through the Bible, God has uh, provided pretty much all we need to know um, in order for us to go ahead and live out our daily lives and to have peace and, and joy and all of these different things. He has revealed to us the reality. Now, magic is an alternative to the revealed word of God. It's a, 
another form of gaining the information. It, it, it goes around the Bible. It says, I, I don't want to look at the Bible for these facts and realities and about the future and about the souls of people and all these things. Magic on its own says, I, you know, I will determine these things. I will summon some other force. I will get this information through some other means. And so it's an, an alternative to the revealed word of God. The revealed word of God, the Bible, states that it is fully sufficient for all aspects of life and living. It says that in 2 Tim 3, 16 to 17. Uh, the Reformers called this sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, which means we don't need anything other than the Bible. We don't need anything other than the scriptures. God's revelation, what he's revealed, his truth, his word is enough. We don't need to seek any alternative means or route. We don't need some other form of, of revelation. We don't need any of those things. God word, God's word is enough. We don't need additional books. We don't need additional writings. We don't need um, the other gospels. We don't need the apocrypha. We don't need the you know early church writings, the writings of the early church fathers. We don't need any of those things on top of the word of God. It alone is our resource. Now, since magic is an alternative spiritual route uh, to getting information, it has to pull from alternative spiritual forces. Um, and those forces are dark forces. Boiled down, magic replaces the word of God, and the magician replaces God's prophet, apostle, pastor, communicator of God's holy word. That's what happens. Now this exchange, exchanging God's revealed truth, this amazing offer of grace through revelation to help guide us, exchanging his revelation for the revelation of demons is an absolute abomination to him. Exchanging his revelation for demonic revelation or any other form of revelation is insulting to him. It is so insulting that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, God gives a description of all of these people that will be thrown into the lake of fire, all of these unrepented people, people who have not turned from their sin, trusted in Jesus, and magicians are mentioned. Simon was this type of magician. And he was exceedingly popular because he amazed the people of Samaria. Verse 9 also says that he claimed to be somebody great. When Simon went about advertising his services, he claimed to be somebody great. He referred to himself as Simon the Great. And I kind of began to understand that it reminded me of the great and all-powerful, all-knowing Oz. We've all seen the Wizard of Oz and this image that he projected. He was really this scrubby little yutz behind a curtain, but, you know, for the most part, it was like, oh, he had this presence and he had this, he was known as something so powerful and great, referring to himself as all-powerful and great. And that is essentially what Simon was doing. He would go about and enunciate his fame and goodness and greatness. Simon's claims of greatness about himself show that he practiced magic for the fame and glory of it. And there was plenty of that available in Samaria. The Samaritans were saying, and it says in our text, this man is the power of God that is called great. Or as the NASB puts it, this man is the great power of God. Great is used as an appellation here rather than an adjective. An appellation is a nickname, something of that nature. If great here were used in the form of an adjective, it would say Simon was great or Simon is great. But the text does not say that. It says Simon the Great. And take notice of how great is capitalized. Great is therefore an appellation or a nickname. Now, if you have an ESV study or reference Bible, I pray that you do or get one, you'll notice, and it might be the same way in these other study Bibles, but you'll notice that great is used 
to reference, okay, great, the same word here, the same Greek word mega is used here, not in a lot of places, but here it's used in our text, and it's also used over in Acts 19, 27 to 28, where great is used to describe the Ephesian goddess Artemis. Great Ephesian goddess Artemis in Acts 19, 27 to 28. Now, great now becomes a reference to deity. Harold O.J. Brown wrote, the early church fathers reported that Simon was one of the founders of Gnosticism and that he viewed himself as God incarnate. The first two teachers to propagate Gnostic ideas within Christian circles were Simon and his successor Menander Unlike later and more famous representatives of, of Gnosticism, both Simon and Menander claimed divinity for themselves. According to Acts 8, 9 to 11, Simon called himself the great power of God. The Greek term he used, dunamis, was used by later more orthodox theologians in reference to the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Justin Martyr, who was one of the early church fathers, also reports Simon's messianic claim. Simon went around claiming to be great and claiming to be God, God incarnate. And he used his magical powers to convince the Samaritans that Simon was no God. He was nothing more than an opportunist who took advantage of the Samaritans. He exploited them for his own purposes. He used magic to minister to their hopes and fears. But in reality, he was just swindling them out of their money and causing them to adore and honor him as a god. If he had done these things, and this is very interesting because he got away with this like nothing in Samaria, but if he'd have been doing this 40 miles south in Israel or in um, Jerusalem, he'd have been stoned to death. Anyone who claimed to be God was put to death, put to the sword, put to the stone. Jesus claimed to be God. We know he was, but he claimed to be God. That's what cost him his life. If Simon the magician would have been pulling these stunts up just up the road a little bit, 40 miles away, it had been killed. But see, he got away with it scot-free in Samaria because they were syncretistic, because they were superstitious and all of these things. But he did claim deity for himself. This guy was self-consumed, calling himself God, calling himself great, using his magic to affirm all this stuff, using his magic to deceive the Samaritan people. Look at 12 to 13. Another point of contrast. I love the word of God. It's <laughs> just so cool. But, <laughs> oh, he was doing all this stuff. He was cool, but, you know, look at it. But when they believed Philip as he preached <laughs> good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Notice that point of contrast. Simon the magician was popular, saying he was great. The Samaritans considered him a god. Everyone went to see him, but Luke now shows us that when Philip came on the scene and started proclaiming, preaching the gospel and performing miracles, the Samaritans flocked to him. They flocked to him, even Simon's followers. I am the great Simon. I am the... I am the alone Simon. I've got nobody around here to fool. This is what happened. Philip came proclaiming the gospel. Lives were being changed. People were being healed. And all of a sudden, the multitudes went, whoop, right over here to this guy. And Simon's standing there with his top hat and his rabbit. Uh, may as well go over there and check it out. I mean, he was basically left. That's the point of contrast. Simon was no longer the next big thing. Simon was no longer the center of attention. And when the people listened to Philip preach the gospel, many responded by faith and were baptized. 
just basically meant that they weren't going back to Simon. Their days of seeking the soothsayer were over. No more visits to the town psychic for them. They had Jesus. They didn't need this guy. All of their spiritual needs and and, and things were met in Christ in a moment. Oh, what a relief. Jesus, what you've done for me. I don't got to go listen to this Klondike bar anymore. I don't need the smoke and mirrors and the guy that, oh, people just, they just bounce. They didn't need him anymore. With no one left to woo, wow, and exploit, Simon made his way over to where the crowd was gathered to listen to Philip. Luke tells us that even Simon believed and was baptized. This has to be a triumphant moment. This is a triumphal moment, isn't it? Wow. Even the soothsayer, the magician, goes over and gets saved. Luke says that Simon was amazed by the signs and wonders that accompanied Philip's preaching. Simon's constant amazement, because it's repeated in this text, it's like it keeps, Luke keeps bringing us back to the amazement of Simon. It's a dead giveaway. His amazement is a dead giveaway that what he was doing, his magic, truly, 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 in the deepest sense, paled in comparison to what the Holy Spirit was doing through Philip. I mean, why did he, I mean, he's got his tricks, he's got his things he's doing, and then he's seeing something that's taking place, and it's mind-blowing, and he can't get his attention off of it. He's just looking, and it's like, wow, look what this guy's doing. What he was doing paled in comparison to what God was truly doing through Philip, as always. Look at 14 to 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. What, what? For he had not yet fallen on any of them, huh? But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What a perplexing text this is. How challenging, how weird, how bizarre, how mysterious. Now, news about the Samaritan revival reached the apostles in Jerusalem at some point. I don't think it was much later, maybe a day or two. And they then sent Peter and John to go there to check it out. Now, Peter and John had a threefold mission. They weren't just going over there going, Hey, we just came over here to get a Starbucks with you. See how your ministry's going. They actually went on a mission. They had a mission to do some things. They had some objectives. They are these. Number one, they came to assist Philip with the spiritual harvest. I mean, think about it. All these Samaritans were getting saved and healed and all of these things were happening. And you've got basically one guy who's overseeing this ministry as it's growing and exploding and expanding. Um, Wow. You know, I was the junior high pastor of, I don't know, a handful of junior high kids. What an absolute, I had 30 some odd leaders, co-leaders there. There's no way I could have led those kids by myself. I mean, leading junior high is like herding cats as it is, but still, right? I mean, I was overwhelmed. I was always praying that I'd have more leaders because it was just tough to, to minister and to disciple all those kids. And so these men, the apostles, Peter and John, went there to assist in the spiritual harvest. They went there to help reap the harvest. They went to support Philip. It was too much for him to handle. They also came, number two, they came to give apostolic sanction and blessing to Philip's work amongst or among the Samaritans. The apostles were the leaders of the church and they maintained that position even after the church spread from Jerusalem. That's God's design. Those apostles were still the overseers of the church the highest of the hierarchy. So they went down there to give sanction and blessing to Philip as he ministered and to those folks. Number three, they came down from Jerusalem and prayed for the Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Although they had believed and been baptized, the Spirit had yet to fall upon them. Perplexing, mysterious text. Verse 16 causes many, many questions to arise, at least for me. 
Why did the Samaritans have to wait for the Holy Spirit? What? How could they truly believe without the Spirit? Isn't it the Spirit that causes all that stuff? Why was the Spirit delayed? Well, MacArthur has great words about this, and they seem to be affirmed by just about every other commentary I read, so I'll just read what he wrote on it because it's, it's MacArthur. It's not me. If I say it, it's going to be dumb. 8.16, he says this about chapter 8, verse 16. For centuries, the Samaritans and the Jews had been bitter rivals. Uh, many of us know and understand that now. The Samaritans and, and Jews of Jerusalem, man, there was a rivalry between them that was just unbelievable. You know, the Samaritans claimed to be true worshipers of the one true God, and they were syncretistic, and the Jews of Jerusalem knew it, and they hated them for it, and they said, you're not true Jews, so quit trying to be that way. There was a tremendous rivalry between them. They despised and hated each other, hence the reason why Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> gotcha. Now, if the Samaritans had received the Spirit independent, because of this rivalry, if they had received the Spirit independent of the Jerusalem church, that rift would have been further perpetuated. There could well have been, been two separate churches, a Jewish church and a Samaritan church. But God had designed one church in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male or female, but all are one in Christ, Galatians 3.28 says. By delaying the Spirit's coming until Peter and John arrived, God preserved the unity of the church. The apostles needed to see for themselves and give firsthand testimony to the Jerusalem church that the Spirit came upon the Samaritans. The Samaritans also needed to learn that they were subject to apostolic authority. The Jewish believers and the Samaritans were thus linked together in one body. MacArthur adds just a little statement here that today believers receive the Spirit at salvation. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. As I said, I checked other commentaries and they seem to affirm this. This seems to be a very, very good explanation as to why the Spirit was delayed. That delay was meant to bring unity to the church and to give the apostles the opportunity to assert their authority. Now, I'm pretty astonished by how God brought the Samaritans to belief and how he sustained their belief for a moment while at the same time holding back his spirit spirit for a little bit of time. I mean, it's so perplexing to me. It's crazy. It's mysterious. There's part of me that just says, how can it be? How can it be? How can it be? But we must remember that God isn't limited by anything and that God can do exactly as he wishes when he wishes. And I, I was trying to, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm weird. I was trying to figure out, okay, how did he do it? Was he sustaining the Samaritans through Philip's faith? I mean, the spirit was in Philip. There's no doubt about it. So maybe he was, I was just trying to figure out all these things. By the time it was all said and done, God was saying, quit trying to figure it out. I just did it. And I do as I please. And I'm like, okay, but it kind of kicks against what your word teaches, Lord. You know, and he's like, move on to something else, Phil. You know, it's a mysterious, challenging thing. But all things are possible for God. Nothing is impossible for him. And it's a mystery and it's interesting, but he did it. And he did send them to go down there and anoint them with the Spirit. They didn't have to wait long. Now, how did the apostles impart the Spirit to the Samaritans? Verse 17 says that they laid their hands on them, that they might receive the Spirit. They went around and prayed for them. I don't know if they did it in little groups or in little pods, because I think there was a lot of people, but I don't know how they did it, but they went and put, placed their hands on people, it says. That's very clear. Now look at 18 to 19. <laughs> Almost a, well, I guess it is another point of contrast. It's all over this thing. Now, not but, it should say but. I like but better, but it says now... When Simon saw, it's not Simon says, Simon saw, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. What did he do? Hallelujah, this is amazing, this is incredible. Woo, touch me, brother, I need the Holy Spirit. No, he said, let me give you some cash. Let, let, me, let me 
let me get some money to you. I, I've, got, I've got some silver over here on my donkey. Let me pay you. Let me give you some money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. That's one heck of a trick you got there. $38.97, I'll give you. Give me the trick. Give me the trick. Give me the trick. He offers to buy it. The apostles were going about laying their hands on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon took notice of what was going on. He then offered the apostles money to give him the power to impart the Spirit to others. Simon treated Peter and John like fellow magicians. These guys are powerful magicians. They're in my territory. Woo! It was very common for magicians to sell their tricks and spells to one another as they traveled. They did this to build up their repertoires. Selling your tricks and spells, if they were any good, could be very lucrative. Simon saw the apostles as fellow and more powerful magicians. That's why he offered them money, saw them as magicians, rather than seeing them as the apostles and authority figures of the church. Simon's request was ignorant and irreverent. Now, some scholars suggest that his request shows that there was a little bit of a problem with his faith. Paquito. Oh, he doesn't quite get it. He doesn't quite understand. His faith was immature at this point. I would like to suggest that his request shows that he had false faith that he had no faith. Simon didn't respond <laughs> to the gospel as his Ephesian contemporaries had. When Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus, many people were converted, including magicians. And the magicians rallied together and gathered their spell and trick books and brought them to the town square and burned them in the presence of all people. They turned from their black arts. They repented. But Simon didn't turn from his old profession. No, he attempted to expand his magical repertoire by asking to buy the apostles' special ability. Keep in mind that there was a revival happening at this place. Men and women were being rescued from hell, damnation, hopelessness, and insecurity by the power of the gospel. Praise God. The apostles were going about imparting the Holy Spirit to these new believers. Lives were being forever changed. The gifts of the Holy Spirit were becoming manifested. What we have here is like a Samaritan version of the day of Pentecost. What's happening in our text is huge. And all Simon could do was ask the apostles to sell him their trick. Why wasn't he rejoicing? Why wasn't he worshiping? Why wasn't he leaping like the lame beggar back at the beautiful gate? I'll tell you why. Because Simon was no true believer. Simon was a tear amongst the wheat. Simon's goal from the very beginning was to do whatever he could to get his followers back. That is why he went to Philip and claimed to believe. That is why he got baptized. That is why he followed Philip around. And that is why he asked to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from the apostles. Everything Simon did was out of vain glory. He wanted his worshipers back no matter what. Simon's strategy was to literally come into the newly formed and expanding Samaritan branch of the church and physically, mind you, physically, not spiritually, physically assimilate into it and then draw his old clients as well as some new ones to himself. Simon was more than a tear, a false believer. Simon was a wolf. 
Wolves come into the church to prey on the sheep. They cloak themselves in Christianity, in the lingo, in the language, in the movements, in the appearance. They copy and mimic believers. And when they feel that the time is right, they begin to promote things that are off, things that do not line up with the scripture, unorthodox, unscriptural ideas. They attempt to lead the sheep away from the truth and away from the true shepherd with their ideas and influence. That is what Simon was aiming to do. You hear me? Theologians actually named a heresy after Simon. It is called simony. Simony is the act of paying for sacraments and consequently for holy offices or for leadership positions in a church. In its simplest terms, simony can be described as trying to buy from God spiritual things with temporal things like money, gold, silver, and so on. But friends, nothing that God has is for sale. Certainly not the Holy Spirit. Indeed, there is nothing that sinful men have to offer him. Salvation and spiritual blessing he pours out freely to his children. Now look at verses 20 to 23 to see how Peter responded to Simon's request. He said, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Notice the exclamation point. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible, I wonder, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And then he says, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter was irate. Peter was infuriated. The literal meaning of the Greek has been softened by most translations. I'm not sure why. J.B. Phillips, his rendering goes as this. To hell with you and your money. That is what the Greek says. Not may your silver perish with you. To hell with you and your money is what Peter said to him in the Greek. A little different, isn't it? Oh, may your silver perish with you. No, 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 no. Peter was infuriated. He immediately turned around and said, to hell with you and your money. Simon's view of the spirit as a commodity to be bought and added to his repertoire was absolutely, unequivocally blasphemous to Peter. Ananias, think of this, Ananias and Sapphira were struck down for lying to the spirit. What might Simon receive for attempting to buy the spirit? Peter exposed Simon's false faith by telling him that he had no part of what was going on because his heart was not right before God. The Greek says that his heart was crooked. It was bent. It was going in the wrong direction is what the Greek says. Peter then commanded him to turn from his wickedness, to repent. Simon, turn from your vainglory. Turn from your pride. Turn from your selfishness and turn from your Simony, you're trying to buy the Holy Spirit. You're supposedly a new believer here. What are you doing? Peter said, pray that the Lord might forgive you for the intent of your heart. Peter then ended his correction with his final assessment of Simon's heart and condition as I read it. He said in verse 23, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon, you are still, translation paraphrase, Simon, you are still in bitter bondage to sin. You are unregenerate. 
Now, even though Peter got angry, and rightfully so, even though his words were like a dagger, his true desire was for Simon to repent and be saved. Peter could have told Simon to go to hell with his silver. He could have told him, just go where you belong. But he didn't leave him at that. He exposed his false faith. And then he let him know that he was a terror. He was a false believer. And he urged him to repent. He urged him to pray to the Lord for the forgiveness of his soul. But Simon didn't respond the way that Peter desired. Look at 24. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon didn't say, I, 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 I can't believe what I've done. I, I'm so sorry for my selfishness. Help me to become right with the Lord. Please forgive me for offending you and God. I'm I'm really having a hard time letting go of my old lifestyle and career. It's such a struggle. Help me, please. Help me, please. Help me, please. He didn't say anything like that. He asked Peter to pray that nothing bad would happen to him. Simon had been struck with a little fear. He feared that something bad could happen to him. But there was no remorse, no repentance, nothing like that in his response. He wouldn't even take Peter's instructions to pray for himself. How bizarre is that for a believer in Christ, a true believer? He didn't rip off and go find a quiet zone and start praying to the Lord. No, he said, just pray that that stuff doesn't happen to me, brah. Hey, dog, pray that that stuff doesn't happen to me. Ooh, that'd be bad. Hook a brother up. Come on, man, pray for me that none of that stuff happens. That sounds bad. That sounds bad. That's bad. Hell? Really? Pray that nothing happens to me, man. Simon's only concern was to escape the temporal consequences of his sin, and yet true repentance, however, consists of more than that. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. As it is, Paul writes, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly worldly grief produces death. I turned into Donald Duck for a second there. It's because my mouth is so dry. Like Elmer Fudd. Paul basically wrote, sin causes grief. And grief produces repentance. And yet, Simon displayed no grief, only a bit of fear over what might happen to him. We see no grief or repentance from Simon in this text whatsoever. Now, when the true believer sins, they experience remorse, grief, brokenness, and even frustration. How many times have you been frustrated with yourself over your sin? Why do I keep doing these things? I hate this, right? Isn't that the attitude and heart on occasion when you keep doing the same stuff? You you get so frustrated. You even get angry with yourself. You get filled with grief and, and even a little bit of hostility towards yourself at times over your sin, over the repetitiveness. We don't see any of that with this man. None of that was happening with him. And you know what? We need to rejoice in knowing that these things, this remorse, this frustration, this anger with ourselves, this grief, rejoice in the fact that those are things that are brought into your life through the Holy Spirit. Those are signs of true salvation. Don't just get mad at yourself. Rejoice that you actually do get mad at your sin. Because guess what? Your human nature says, don't get mad at it, rejoice in it. Splendor in it. 
perpetuate more of it. And yet there's something within you, the Holy Spirit himself, that says wrong, bad, grief, repentance, brokenness, spiritual poverty. Now, fear of God or reverence for him is correct too. That is a correct response. We don't want to discount the fear that he sensed. That's a legitimate thing. We should revere God, but reverence apart from grief is not from or of the Holy Spirit. In true salvation, reverence and grief are both present and married together in the life of the true believer. We respect God. We seek to honor Him. And when we sin against Him and others, we experience grief and remorse. And those things lead to repentance, restoration, and joy. These very important facets of true salvation were absent in Simon's life. And I believe that they are absent in many churchmen today. Many in the church today are just like Simon. They fear the consequence of sin, but have no real hatred of sin in their hearts. I believe that many in the church today are like Simon in that they have become captivated by what they see rather than converted by what they hear. They see all the incredible things in the church, the incredible fellowship, the incredible outpouring of God's power and blessings. They see the talent of God's people on display through music, art, and teaching and these things. They see the beauty of the people of God serving one another. They even see opportunities uh, for themselves to employ their talents. All of these things captivate them. And yet out of pride and love of sin, out of selfishness, out of vainglory, they suppress the truth and remain unconverted by what they hear. How else could Simon move around and move about inside the church? He was captivated by the miracles, by the blessings, by the anointings, by the gifts, by the talent. He was captivated by all of the good things that God bestows upon his son's lovely bride but he wasn't converted by the message at all. And I believe there are multitudes of tares, people who do this very same thing, people who feel nothing over their sin, people who seek after the vainglory stuff in the church. Years ago, a friend of mine quoted <laughs> Joe. He quoted a statistic that he came across and researched. He preached a sermon at a camp that we had, and he came across a statistic that said that only 10% of all the Christians are really born again. That means 90%, that would mean 90% of the church are false believers or tares. Now, over the years as a pastor, I've served around people, many, who profess faith have been baptized, who follow leaders and other believers around and then respond to their sin like Simon. I've seen the fear of consequence arise in many, many people without any grief, remorse, or brokenness over sin. I've seen it so many times, I can't count all of the experiences and people that I've seen this happen in. I believe the church is filled with tares. I believe the church is filled with people who are captivated and unconverted. I believe there are Simons everywhere. One of the most fearful, and this totally sustains this belief and angle, one of the most fearful realities in all of Scripture is that some who think they are saved will be eternally lost. Thinking that they are on the narrow way of saving truth that leads to heaven, they are in reality on the broad road of religion that leads to destruction. They will one day hear from the Lord Jesus Christ the most shocking, terrifying words any human could ever hear. I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice iniquity, lawlessness. 
to their horror, they will discover too late that there is an entrance to hell at the edge of the very gates of heaven. That is a truth and that is a reality. And the reason why that has been said, that has been written and recorded for us, is that we may know that we are surrounded by tares, that there are people who come in and remain unconverted and yet captivated. There are people who come in to exploit the church, to use it for their own means. There are men who become pastors, and they do this for the simple reason of exalting themselves and having a public forum where they can exalt themselves and be seen and be loved and be cherished and idolized. This is happening in the church right now as I speak. Churches all across the world as they gather to worship. There are men, there are people who proclaim to be believers and they aren't. It's everywhere. Now, I don't know if the statistic is that low, but after doing ministry for the last 10 years, I suspect that it is because I have met so many people, so many people who feel nothing over their sin. Oh, I don't want to get busted. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want this to happen. How do you feel about the sin, though? I mean, you, you offended God. You hurt that person. Well, you know, God's grace. God's grace? What? God's grace. Friends, how can we know that we are truly saved? In light of all of this, there might be some here who have fear. Praise the Lord. But how might we know that we are truly saved? Let me ask you this. Have you come to realize that you are a helpless sinner in need of God's grace and mercy? Have you repented of your sin, which basically means to experience a change of heart about sin? I loved it, I don't love it, I struggle with it, but I don't like it. That's true repentance. Have you placed your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? If you've realized, repented, and you're relying on Jesus for your salvation, you're saved. It's a simple formula. If that's you, it's a reality. Realize. Repent. There is no salvation apart from repentance. No one is saved who doesn't turn from their sin. It's critical. And realize that Jesus is it. I'm placing my faith and trust in him. I bring nothing to it. I simply cling, as Bruce always says in his prayers, to the cross. That's it. I'm clinging to Jesus. He's my only hope. If that's you, you're saved. And that's not my opinion. That's what this says. This is something you can bank on. Don't trust me. I'll close with this as we transition to communion. This is another tremendous warning for all of us. We all, by default, commit simony. Our simony is that we try to purchase our justification before God through moralism, good deeds, just straight goodness. We all commit simony. We all add to what Jesus has done in some way, shape, or form. There are times where, where we believe that I've got to do something. Certainly there's got to be something more to all this than just what Jesus did. Communion says, nope, it's finished. Cease your striving.
take these elements in remembrance of what I did. Take these elements in remembrance of the reality that only I could do this and that you never could. Take joy in knowing that it's not your work 